Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is sponsored by Who's Your Devil, supporting and promoting roots music in Western North Carolina and beyond. Owned and operated by Maggie Rainwater, who incidentally is one of the hardest working people I know, Who's Your Devil offers a variety of services, including graphic and web design, publicity, and social media management to promote your band, album, or event. Visit the team on social media at whosyourdevil.com. That's H-O-O-S-I-E-R-D-E-V-I-L.com. Who's your devil? Welcome to Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Highly respected broadcaster Cindy Bauckham sits down with Daniel Mullins this week to talk about how she got her start in radio, her work as a sought-after festival MC, and her love of bluegrass music that started in her early years growing up in North Carolina. Recorded backstage at the legendary North Carolina Roots Music Festival Merle Fest, Cindy relates her journey from music fan to hosting one of the most successful syndicated bluegrass radio programs in the world. She shares stories of her journey and talks about what it takes for a great bluegrass song to make their way to the airways. Let's sneak into a backstage dressing room at Merle Fest and join Daniel and Cindy for this episode of Walls of Time. So, Miss Cindy, you grew up here in North Carolina, correct? I did. I grew up in Ashe County, which is the very northwest corner of North Carolina, bordering both Virginia and Tennessee. Um, so did you grow up around bluegrass being here in North Carolina? Absolutely. My dad played music and built instruments. So as far back as I can remember, I was going with his band to fiddlers conventions and music festivals. There were jam sessions at the house. I was getting to meet people in the music because of him and from the beginning just loved it. I loved the sound. I loved the friendships formed, and it's just a very special thing. And being um, in the mountains of North Carolina, music was so much a part of everything. Church, um, any kind of gathering, uh, music was always there. I can't remember a time in my life when there wasn't just a lot of music all around me. When did you decide that, okay, this music, it's a part of everybody's day-to-day life, but when did you decide that, did you did you get the bug to be a part of the music business and the music industry? At what age did that kind of go from more than just a, oh, this is just part of life, to I want this to be my life? Oh, my goodness. That, that was also very, very early on. Um, I had an opportunity when my dad's band played they would bring me up on stage to do a song from the time I was little you know but you know in terms of getting into broadcasting I always felt like wow what better way to share the music you love with a whole lot of people at the same time than if you're on the radio and I can remember getting a cassette recorder as a Christmas present I might have been seven or eight years old, and in addition to singing into it, every month when Bluegrass Unlimited magazine would be in the mailbox, I would read the articles on microphone and listen back on the cassette player, you know. And so that was early on uh, some of my broadcasting practice for Bluegrass, I suppose, and I would also interview the babysitter 
uh, and we had an older babysitter that played guitar and sang old country songs. Oh, that's cool. And babysitter, so, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> So I loved uh, saying, sing us another song. And then I would introduce her, and she would sing a song. <laughs> and uh, I actually ran across some of these cassettes a while back. But over time, you know, a cassette tape does not last like a digital file, unfortunately. But I could faintly hear some things that brought back a lot of good memories. And um, then, you know, in terms of... Uh, playing when uh, I was thinking about the eighth grade uh, I had played piano since I was eight played piano in church I was in the school band playing saxophone but I decided I wanted dad to start showing me some guitar chords and uh, but then I decided because his band needed a bass player I said well, what if I learned to play bass so he had a friend that had an extra K base and he brought it to the house and said he said you could you know work with this until you see if it's something you want to do now this base had the cat gut strings they were raveling so to play this base as many hours a day as I did it was literally making my fingers bleed <laughs> but some people say that but you 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 mean it, literally oh, it was literal <laughs> but he said this shows me you really want to get into the music. And so at that point, he he found me a K-Bass and bought me a 1947 K-Bass uh, that I still have and a 1983 Martin. And um, But at age 17 is when... Um, and how I actually started working at our local radio station... I started working at age 15 at our local hospital as switchboard operator and um, receptionist. And I would listen to our local bluegrass show. And at the time, Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver had just come on the scene. And, oh, I loved that music. I can remember hearing cuts and going, this is just the best music I've ever heard. <laughs> and the announcer was not well-versed in bluegrass, and it was obvious that when he would play a cut, he would turn to look at the turntable, and I remember him going, that's a brand-new band called Sugar Hill. And I just about freaked. <laughs> Reading the record left. <laughs> uh, so... At one of my shifts as a switchboard operator, the radio station owner came through, and, and he knew me because he emceed a lot of the local shows where I would play and sing with my dad. And uh, I said, could I assist your bluegrass announcer maybe selecting music and giving him a sheet of facts uh, so that he's doing it correctly? <laughs> and as a teenager, looking back, that was a pretty forward thing for me to do, but I wanted it to be right. Yeah, because you cared that much about the music. I did yeah. care that much about the music, and when I listened to the radio, I loved Casey Kasem, and I would always think to myself, why can't bluegrass artists be presented, you know, on this pedestal and acknowledged for their talent, and here's their latest song from their latest album and a long-distance dedication. And I was thinking to myself, why can't bluegrass be presented like that? And so even way back then, syndication was my ultimate goal in my head. Had no yeah. idea how to get there. But after asking the local station owner about 
just assisting. He said, oh, we really need someone to do that show. And I know that you know the music. And at the time, he was president of the North Carolina Association of Broadcasters. And he said, I What can, radio station was this? It's WKSK in uh, West Jefferson, North Carolina, Ash County. And I thought, wow, what an opportunity. And so I started learning on the job when I was 17, had my own bluegrass show called WKSK's Bluegrass Spectacular, (laughs) which aired when I got out of school on Mondays and Tuesdays. I had a three-hour show after school going into the evening. and um, So what, like four to seven, something like that? Yeah, and I actually found some playlists. I was cleaning out a box of stuff at my mom's recently, and there were some legal pads. And I was like, oh my goodness, these are my old playlist. And they were from the early 80s. And it was Doyle Austin and Quicksilver, Boone Creek, the Bluegrass Cardinals, Carl Jackson with Keith Whitley, J.D. Crow in the New South. I'm like, my All the goodness. Good, yeah, good taste. <laughs> Even then, I was really picking the good stuff. <laughs> so that that's how it all started. That's awesome. And so you just you were just kind of like a, a a horse to water. You just kind of just took up with it. Oh my goodness. Yes. Loved it. So after I was established doing the bluegrass show, then when it came high school graduation time, I was going to go straight into a broadcasting curriculum and um, station owner said, I would really like to bring you on full time. And I thought, well, I'll go ahead and take a full-time job and take my classes at night, which I did, Wilkes Community College. (laughs) (laughs) Ironically, the home of Merle Fest for the past 32 years. But um, started doing a uh, gospel show weekday mornings in addition to the bluegrass show and then doing production and advertising sales and really at that time when I went into it full-time learning every element of what it takes because as you know you need to know how your job fits with this guy's job within the station to make it all run smoothly. So it's kind of like how so many people in bluegrass wear so many different hats. It's the yeah, same thing at a radio station. Exactly. Everybody had, everyone could be called in to do anything at any moment. So you exactly. got to kind of understand how everybody else's job works. And I love it that way. And I look back on that time um, as just so much of a learning experience, working with really good people, and um, it it really. It really kicked things off for me in such a way that I enjoyed it. But I always said to myself, this is going to be a fun thing to do until I decide what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, like a when I grow quote unquote up. real job. Yeah. Yeah. And 36 years later, I'm still doing it. So <laughs> I've either not found my lot in life or uh, I found it early, early on. And I think that that is the case. Um, and I know not a lot of people are lucky enough to fall into it that easily, but just feel really fortunate that I did and all these many years later have gotten the opportunities um, that I've gotten because of the work in radio. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Casey Kasem. Who were some of your other uh, broadcasters that you listened to growing up? Oh, my goodness. Um, I was just a big AM radio fan. 
I would scan the dial. It was like if there was a station that I wanted to hear that I could get more clearly at night, WSM, for example, yeah. AM650, you know, you can, oh, you can just tune it in. And uh, sometimes it takes a, a bit of uh, maneuvering to get the frequency just right, or you might have to sit the radio up in the window or move the antenna a bit. But I was always up for the challenge. But I can remember keeping my cassette recorder, the one I got as an eight-year-old, next to the radio. And I would scan the dial. And when there would be something on that 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 caught my ear I would keep it on pause on record and pause and I would always turn it on and catch a little bit and and so now looking back I was making mixtapes like (laughs) way back then way back then but I remember having everything from Dolly Parton to uh, Lynn Anderson to Sticks and Air Supply, so I was listening to a variety of music and and loved a variety of music, but, you know, just early on, I was just a big fan of radio, and then when TNN came on the air, the Nashville Network, every night, I so enjoyed Ralph Emery's show and, and listening to him interview the people that I was getting to play on the radio, they would sit down there with Ralph Emery, um, on Nashville now and uh, so you know he was one that I I really um, enjoyed and then it was such a thrill getting to meet him Um, did a talent contest in the late 80s at the High Country Fair in Boone and he just happened (laughs) to be the stage host and uh, so you know like I say over the years there have just been those moments where it's so surreal and I know you've had the same experiences you just sort of take stock in the moment and go wow this is why I do this and this is a really cool moment I used to call my dad at work when I would hear a new song on the radio and we had a record store in town and anytime there was a new single out I knew that this record store would be well stocked with the vinyl and I would call dad at work and ask him to stop and get me a copy of. And I remember one of those was Tom T. Hall, Old Dog's Children and Watermelon (laughs) Wine. Oh, and every time it comes on the radio, you know, they say music will spark memories. Yeah. And it certainly does. You know, these songs come on, it's like, oh, that, that takes me back to a really happy time in my life. And getting to go and sit down at the dining room table of Tom T. and Dixie Hall and him tell me about what he was doing just before he wrote this song and me sitting there going it was just one of my favorites as a kid and now I'm face to face with the writer and singer and getting the backstory those are the things I love um you mentioned that uh listening to Casey Kasem and how the way he presented the music that he's passionate about and you wanted to see if bluegrass broadcasting could go to that same level to where it was presented first class uh, on par with top country top 40 whatever and you said that even though you might not have known how you were going to get there that syndication was kind of in the back of your head like that would be cool if bluegrassers had that same outlet how did uh, the journey to syndication occur because you're obviously one of the top syndicated bluegrass radio hosts well thank you um after the hometown station there for four and a half years 
I started working my way off the mountain. I started going <laughs> going <laughs> south and, and working my way on down the mountain. And my next radio job was WKBC in North Wilkesboro, North Carolina, as program director and morning show host and a, a bluegrass show called The Bluegrass Breakdown on WKBC. We also had live groups come through. And I was familiar with that station because my dad's band used to go there when I was little and record a weekly radio show. And I would be there while they were in the studio recording the show to be aired later that uh, that coming week. And so I got a job there and uh, was there for eight and a half years. And so that was more experience and getting more confidence, getting, uh, getting better at the craft, and that also, uh, during the time I was there, that's when the groundwork for Merle Fest was being laid, then known as the Eddie Merle Watson Memorial Festival, and being right here in the county where that big festival was starting to take shape, uh, it got me on board early on as an MC on the main stage and doing interviews and even during that time B Towns who uh, was here at Wilkes Community College and, and started things he wanted the festival to grow but he also wanted the local support and he wanted uh, people to really understand locally what the vision was for the festival and he would bring Doc Watson to the studio we had a small studio, and literally, Doc Watson and I would be knee-to-knee. Knee. Doc would be telling stories about Merle and growing up, and uh, then he would play a song. Then we would chat some more. He would play a song. And this was just, you know, in the very, very early years of the festival. And being at WKBC allowed me that opportunity. Were there any of those particular stories that Doc told about Merle that I have stuck with you, you know, 30-plus years later. You know what? Just in general, the closeness and that bond they had because of the music, but not only because of the music, but, you know, Merle was Doc's eyes, mm -hmm. and he just relied on him so much in so many ways. Uh, but one thing that does stick with me, and will from now on, I know, after one of those meetings doc was leaving the radio station and he said cindy could you make a tape for me i said absolutely anything you want and i was very intrigued at what doc watson might ask for because you know music is you know he was just around music always and yeah. made some of the best in the world he said do you have a, a production studio here with sound effects nature sounds i said i do he said, would you just record me about 90 minutes worth of wind, birds, river, ocean? That's my music. He said, nature sounds, what God created, that's my music. I thought, oh. Oh, my gosh. So I got right on that project, and yeah. I got that to Doc Watson. But that really intrigued me that that was music to his ears, and, and that's what that's what he asked me for. And so after And you can even hear some of that closeness with nature in a, in a lot of his recordings, not necessarily with sound effects or whatever, but it you can definitely feel that kinship. It was just such a raw 
uh, and I mean that in the most uh, complimentary way, a very honest approach he took to the music. Uh, and I know many times when I would start to introduce him at a show and I would be talking about winner of the Grammy Awards and all these things, he go, he would stop me many times and say, oh, Cindy, let's pretend like we're in my living room and these folks just came to visit and I'm going to pick a few tunes for them. And he was that humble about it. But because it was so honest and so genuine, yeah, there was a, a real closeness to to nature I think and a real connection uh, real connection to his father and you know after I left that station I went on uh, uh, continued my journey south <laughs> and uh, started working at a um, hundred thousand watt FM station in Statesville North Carolina which was a market directly between Charlotte and Winston-Salem Greensboro High Point and so we were right there at the intersection of I-40 and I-77 huge coverage and it had the reputation of uh, being the second full-time country station to ever come on the air the first station to ever start NASCAR qualifying when there wasn't a network doing it and NASCAR is something else that while I was in North Wilkesboro and the North Wilkesboro Speedway was so popular, um, I did the last four national anthems televised on ESPN at the North Wilkesboro wow. Speedway. So that was a cool thing. And, and when it came to doing a remote with a NASCAR driver back then, Terry Labonte would walk up at Lowe's Foods and say, Junior Johnson told me to stop by because Banquet Foods is on my car now. <laughs> so, you know, um, and and so being around that and then moving on to WFMX and they had an established bluegrass show and host, but I really took to the sponsorship side of that and wanted to um, help advertisers who were doing festivals or who had... Um, products and services that would work well with that audience. Uh, but in addition to doing the morning show there and advertising sales, I also had a classic country show that followed the Bluegrass show three hours every Sunday night. And one of the things that amazed me there, that's where I started getting a lot of mail from prison. <laughs> People would hear Merle Haggard and George Jones and Charlie Pride and Tanya Wynette, I mean, uh, Tammy Wynette and Tanya Tucker. And every week I would come in like on Tuesday morning and have a stack of mail from prisons all over the listening area. Oh, we tune in. It makes us think of happier times. My mom and dad always listen to that, or my grandma that raised me was a big fan of this music. And it just really, really um, surprised me, I guess. But then when you think about it and you see how far-reaching music is in, in reaching people and Many would say, this is the bright spot of my week, the three yeah. hours I can hear you present this music. So that was another thing that made me realize, wow, what you do and the way you do it really does mean something so to that, people. that helped you view your craft in a different light then, I guess. It did. It did because um, instead of just entertaining people, uh, I was somewhat of a therapist too, I suppose. Wow. Wow. 
right, fellas, it's time to care about your hair. I was just like you. Doing my hair meant hairsprays and gels that would either leave my hair crunchy or greasy. So what would I do? I'd throw in a ball cap on my way out the door and call it a day rather than fool with my hair. Then I found Samson's Hair Care. Their hair pomade is the best, truly. It has a matte finish so your hair doesn't look wet and oily, and it's made with essential oils and other all-natural ingredients. has an all-day hold as well so you can be confident that your hair will look as good in the evening as it did when you left the house. And it smells great too. Great hair is a staple in bluegrass. Just look at Del McCurry and Larry Sparks. Samson's knows this. That's why they're offering Walls of Time listeners 10% off. Visit samsonshaircare.com and use code BLUEGRASS to save 10% on your order. It's like Samson from the Bible. His hair was legendary and now yours can be too. samsonshaircare.com code BLUEGRASS at checkout to save 10% off the best hair pomade you'll ever buy. That's samsonshaircare.com code bluegrass and now back to walls of time you mentioned taking to the sponsorship and advertising side of radio and that's one thing that i think a lot of people don't understand is that those commercials are what pay the bills and if the bills aren't paid you can't play dual loss and quicksilver on the radio um what are some ways that you would connect your sponsors and your audience um and show that and show your sponsors that bluegrass music was a valuable outlet for their business. There were a lot of different ways, and I wanted to always do something more than just sell them the airtime, produce them a commercial, and air it during the show. It's like, what extra things can we do? And whenever the internet started getting more and more popular, then, you know, we would put banner ads on the station website linking back to the business or I would even book bluegrass bands to go do remotes at the business because I think it's such an art form many times people can see it live and truly appreciate it so much more than just listening so seeing it live then they wanted to listen to the music even more on the air and support the businesses that were helping keep it on the air and uh, but yeah such an important element and you know and I have people today say well I'd like to be able to listen to bluegrass all the time but I don't want to pay money every month for a subscription and and it's like well you know in terms of uh, looking at radio if you're listening to an AM or FM station that business is paying that bill for you and uh, and then that business is having the opportunity to tell you about their products or services yeah absolutely absolutely for any potential businesses that want to sponsor bluegrass whether it's on the radio or a festival or any type of outlet what are some things about bluegrass audience and bluegrass listeners that provide value to their to their business It is a very loyal audience. People like you and I are just like the listeners of the music. They're so passionate. Many of them play music, and even if they are not artists themselves, they follow the music so closely. It is just a a loyal bunch of folks, and they trust what we're telling them, and that is probably one of the biggest assets of uh, you know the the loyal community of uh, of the bluegrass community, and 
in particular, I have a lot of events um, that I help, and you're talking to their potential audience for their festivals, their ticket buyers, their campers. You know, we're talking to them, and no better way to get that message out there than speaking directly to the people who are looking for the shows and festivals to attend. What are advantages that radio advertising has compared to kind of the social media or the web advertising that's been so popular? What's some of the value that radio brings that other mediums do not have? I think it gives us an opportunity to share our passion. People can hear the excitement in our voices when we're talking about a particular band or a particular new song or this old cut that I've always loved. And I've always heard radio described as theater of the mind. And we can create this visual because all they have is the audio. I say all they have, but with the audio, you know, we can give them samples of the music. Whereas if they're looking at something in print, they're reading about it, they're getting the facts. But on radio, their ears are hearing the great music that they're in store for. They're getting the message from somebody that they know and trust uh, has seen this band before or has been to this festival before. And I think that when you have radio in place and then you support that, with billboards and magazine ads and banner ads on the website and social media, all of that working together yeah. really creates the opportunity for success. Awesome. So you're at this uh, larger market station in North Carolina. How did your journey continue from there? Well, at that time, um, I had a radio station in Greensboro want to start a bluegrass show. And my husband, Terry Bauckham, uh had written the instrumental Knee Deep in Bluegrass. And it, in 2001, received Recorded Event of the Year. And I thought to myself then, if there's ever an opportunity for uh, a bluegrass show, Knee Deep in Bluegrass would be a great name for the show. And that would be a great theme song. So it started on one station in the Greensboro, North Carolina market. And while the show was on that station, uh, about two years, um, so the CEO of the John Boy and Billy Network had taken a real interest in banjo, started taking lessons from my husband, Terry, and then told him that he was a regular listener of my show in Greensboro. And John Boy and Billy are a morning team on primarily classic rock stations but they loved the music so much they would frequently have Del McCurry as a guest Earl Scruggs Dolly Parton and they wanted to promote bluegrass but kept getting kickback from classic rock stations going what what's this that you're throwing at us every once in a while and they weren't pleased so the CEO said well, why don't we just syndicate a bluegrass show that John Boy and Billy can support and help produce and distribute, and then everybody's happy. Then the stations that don't want to carry it don't have to hear it, but the ones that are all in or maybe even non-classic rock stations can pick it up as well to make up the difference. 
Absolutely. And so he had been listening to the station. Um, I mean, he'd li- yeah, the, the station in Greensboro that was airing Knee Deep in Bluegrass. And he said, Terry asked Cindy if she'd be interested in having her show syndicated. <laughs> so it's been all these like 20 years later till this <laughs> offer finally comes in. <laughs> But honestly, I wouldn't have been ready for it any earlier, I don't think. And But he told him, he said, I know without asking, the answer is yes. So in February of 2003, I started working with the um, production team at John Boy and Billy because they had had a successful syndicated uh, morning show for many, many years. So we started putting the elements in place and how the program would be put together. And in July of 2003, we went on the air with 28 stations. And now, 16 years later, we're up to almost 100. Wow. That's awesome. I love the opportunity of getting to put together a show every week, getting it out to that many radio markets and knowing that people are getting to listen to the music I love. What are some of the biggest differences in your approach to broadcasting being on a local station versus a syndicated radio show? Well, locally, I was a lot more open to playing local bands, Um, family bands. and, And there's a lot of good ones on a national level, too. But I do have to turn a lot of people down just because I know that so many of the stations that Knee Deep and Bluegrass runs on is a top 40 country station through the week, and I'm their weekend specialty programming, and I want the transition to be such that it's still appealing to their audience. Um, if, if they're going out of a country format into my Bluegrass show, and they're still hearing Ricky Skaggs and Patty Loveless and Vince Gill and Allison Krauss. But then they're also hearing Joe Mullins and the Radio Ramblers. And they're hearing Rhonda Vincent and Daly and Vincent. You know, um, it has to be what I refer to as radio friendly. And I know that you know what that means. But on local radio, there were many times that it was very appropriate to play you know, this family group because they're doing this revival at this big church, and it was very appropriate. But on a national level, I think that that's where a group needs to have paid their dues. Don't record one CD in the course of two days and think I'm obligated to play it. It has to meet certain criteria, and I think that that's only being fair to the music. But not only that... It's setting a bar for others to try to achieve. If you look at other formats, you know, whether it's country or, or rock or whatever, the people you're hearing on the radio, they didn't get there. By six, just showing uh, up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't just record a project, send it out to radio, and it gets played because you asked them to. Um, I have high standards. I have high standards in the recording production in the performing production and the material um, and it all has to be top shelf to make the cut yeah. just like you said um, not that 
maybe some of these local or regional bands aren't making quality music, but nationally known artists, just like you're going to hear on country or rock or whatever, it you got to appeal to a national audience. And um, you might be really good, but if only people in a tri county area know you, it's not going to, it's going to like putting a a round peg into a square hole to try and put it on a nationally syndicated show. For sure. And I try to explain it to people like, you know, my show is not designed to introduce new artists to um, to the listeners. It's more designed to um, complement the country formats that I'm, um, you know, working with. Um, and, and, and sometimes it's a tough call because there are so many people I know and love that, that make music that really touches the heart. But I've had markets where I'm the only bluegrass they've ever had on the station. And one comes to mind. I, I was on an Atlanta station. They said, now, we've never aired any bluegrass on the station, but we're going to give it a try. They called me the following week after running one show, and they said, my goodness, Monday morning we had all kinds of calls. What is this I'm hearing? I love it, and we hope that you keep playing it. So I thought to myself then, I know when I'm in the car, I'll hit scan a lot if I'm in a different area, and I'll hit scan and see what comes in. And so I got to thinking to myself, with all these new markets – if somebody's scanning the dial, I don't want that one cut that I decided, well, I'll play it because she's so sweet or, or oh, he's been so good to me and I, I hate not to play their, their new song. You can't take the chance that they're scanning the dial and it land on the one that sounds so out of place on that big FM radio station that, you know, you know. So, you know, no offense to anyone if I've never played your music, but I do hope that people who are new listeners to the music or even casual listeners will be hearing it and loving it and uh, to the point they want to go seek the local bluegrass scene in their area. Totally. What are some of the the earmarks you look for in a new music to play it on, on the air? Whether it's a you know an old cut or I guess or a new cut or an old cut, you know a lot of times I can tell by the intro and the first verse and a little bit into the chorus if it's going to be something that's going to fit my show. Um, and then you know there's some weeks I'm looking for different tempos in different areas, but but again it just goes back to quality. And if it starts with a, a good song, if it's a good song lyrically and musically and it's performed well and the recording quality is high, that's a winner in my book. <laughs> what are some of the biggest um, misconceptions or what are some things that you think that you, your average bluegrass fan maybe misunderstands about what it takes to be a bluegrass radio broadcaster? Oh, we just sit there and play records. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you've got such a fun job. All you have to do is sit there and play records. Um, So much. You would not believe. Yeah, you would because you do it. But the average person wouldn't believe how much preparation time goes into assembling a show, uh, picking that right combination of groups and tempos, and are you following a theme that week? And then 
just in terms of not only the show itself, but staying in touch with all the network affiliates, trying to add more network affiliates, talking to new potential sponsors, servicing the sponsors you already have. I mean, it, it's really a full-time job, um, but but one that I truly love. The, the sitting there playing records is about, you know, 5 to 10% <laughs> of what of the time that goes into what you actually do. Yeah, And it's, you know, it's much like a band that's traveling. That 45-minute set on stage, that's their fun time. But my goodness, it's such a small percentage of what it actually takes to have a touring yeah, band. That's a great so comparison. It's, it's the same difference. You know, bluegrass music has gone through some changes over the past 40 years since you started playing those first Quicksilver albums on the air. But broadcasting has gone through just as many, if not more, changes over the past you know four decades. What are some of the biggest changes, either good or bad, that you've seen in, in radio broadcasting over the past few decades? Well, when I first started, you know, we were still playing the vinyl 45s and uh, LPs. Um, and, and you talk about being on your toes then. Oh, because my goodness. If you don't, if you don't cut it off, it's just going to go right on into track two or three. Uh, absolutely. And, yeah. and you then have to queue them up, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, queuing up those records. I can remember the first CD that was ever brought into the radio station in the 80s, and it was the Judds. So ha, you and I just recently experiencing uh, Winona in person, uh, it made me think of that when, uh, when Winona was singing. Um, it was the Judds that I first played on the air off of a CD. So that's a big change from vinyl to CD and now hard drive, you know, um, the, the digital downloads. So how the music is delivered is uh, a big, big change. Um, let's see, commercials, <laughs> the carts yeah. that we used to play about the size of an eight track. Um, that's, uh, that's something else. I can remember... Um, editing editing commercials or programs or songs and you would literally splice the reel-to-reel tape you would cut it with a razor blade and you would tape it back together on the bottom and that's how you would cut and paste it was like literally cutting and pasting so a big big change there you mentioned the, <laughs> the cart commercials you know hanging around the radio station as a kid that was always my job when i would show up at six or seven was i got to use the little magnetic machine and erase the carts <laughs> That was my first job at the radio station. I didn't get paid for it, but <laughs> erasing the cards. Because when you're seven or eight, you think, man, that's really fun. Oh, well, I still think it's oh, fun. It, if you, I get you to do it, it now. And you rub it. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, those are, those are probably some of the, the biggest things that I see. And then doing a remote broadcast used to be quite a job in itself just going and setting up remotely to do a broadcast where now if you've got a cell phone (laughs) you can do it you mentioned uh, earlier about the mc work and how that's kind of was some opportunities that came about through being a radio broadcaster and you're one of top, the top bluegrass MCs now as well on the festival scene you mentioned Merle Fest you've been one of their MCs since day 1 what are some uh, what are some ways that you tie in the broadcasting and the MC work and help them complement one another well 
of course, if the festival I'm working is a sponsor of the show, um, it's it's real easy trans transition out of a, a song. Um, you know, if they're it, especially if you can play a live cut by an artist, they're going to be seeing live at that festival. Hey, I'm going to be there. Join me, kind of thing. But even you know, and, and being on stage as as an MC is is like doing the radio show only. People are watching. (laughs) I can't do that in uh, sweatpants and a ponytail. Well, I guess I could. It wouldn't be very professional. But, you know, the radio, um, you don't know how I look. You don't know if I've put my makeup on that morning. But, boy, going up on stage, everybody's watching then. But but they do... uh, tie in well and and being married to a banjo player who um, tours and has for many many years it works out well that we get to do a lot of traveling together and work the same festivals however there are times when I'm emceeing somewhere and he's playing somewhere else it's like ah okay I understand you have fun I'll see you back at the house but I love that Many times we're working the same events and getting to see some beautiful parts of the world. Uh, we got to go to Japan a few years ago, and to see the popularity of bluegrass in Japan was such an eye-opening experience to me. People would bring albums of Boone Creek and early Quicksilver to shows for Terry to autograph that they had had all those years but it was their first opportunity seeing him in person or they would have Bluegrass Unlimited magazine or many would tell me because of web streaming they get to listen to Knee Deep in Bluegrass so I'm going we are halfway around the world and when I was in the fifth grade study in geography who would have ever thought that this would be possible on this level, but but it is, and and I'm glad that it is. We both know that both MCs and broadcasters, quality of MCing and quality of broadcasting really runs the gamut. What are your some of some of your biggest do's and don'ts of being an MC and being a broadcaster? Oh my goodness! I'm going to start with the MC part because there are so many pet peeves that I have, and many of these I have observed traveling with Terry and not as an MC myself we get to a large festival first thing the MC does is come over and say uh where y'all from what do you want me to say about you well do you have a record out now to me that would be like the band going to the show unrehearsed not knowing what's on their set list it's like your gig is to build this band by giving a few of their highlights the timing of introducing them to the point before they hit that first note the crowd anticipates a good show you've let them know some things about this group that is going to make them look forward to the show even more and kick it off right in the beginning but if you don't know anything about them why are you the MC? why do they hire you to MC if you're not going to research the people that you're introducing and do it in such a way that it complements the overall production of what's going on on stage yeah absolutely absolutely Um, just like you wouldn't show up to as you mentioned a band show up to a gig unprepared or you wouldn't show up into the radio studio unprepared mcs should they should follow those same rules oh yes (laughs) 
What are some other MSing pet peeves that you have? Oh, um, or any or any horror story MCs that you've observed. Oh my goodness, uh, pronouncing the wrong names. That's that's another one. You don't even know the group well enough to say their name right. And and that's one too where maybe you haven't ever heard the name said, but that's a really easy one to go up and be like, "Hey, is it Balcom or Bacom?" You Thank know. Thank you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I that's that's something else. And as an MC, I can't understand why, when I'm making a big string of announcements, maybe recognizing sponsors, why an audience member wants to stand right in front of me, telling me to have Daly and Vincent do uh, one of their biggest songs. You know, ha- my wife and I are having our thirtieth anniversary, and and I'm I'm talking on mic, and they're down there, and they think I'm going to stop talking to the crowd to take their request. I just don't understand why that happens, but it does. Two minutes so ago, often. I was standing right there. You could have come right up. Right? <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, or they'll come up and say, "People are talking loud around me," or. Can you tell people to know? It's like, oh, my goodness, there there is protocol for this. Don't walk up to the front of the stage while I'm doing my job. You know, that's like busting in the operating room and saying, uh, doctor, my knee has been hurting me. Can I ask you a question? I'm busy right now. Can it wait? So, yeah. Um, and on the broadcast side, uh, sometimes I'm embarrassed for the music when I hear um, – less than stellar um, delivery. Sometimes I have even questioned station owners because I love the music so much. And and it helps everybody when there's a professional face to it. And there's already so many negative stereotypes to overcome just because of the mindset that people have gotten over the years when bluegrass has been on a big scale sometimes it's not been in the best light you know for as much good as hee-haw did for the music and presenting people some people associate hay bales and cornfields and straw hats and blacked out teeth and that kind of thing but so many groups that are so talented have worked so hard to overcome those stereotypes but boy, there's a lot of bluegrass radio still keeping it alive, you know. And when I've questioned some general managers in the past, they're like, oh, they volunteer for that spot and bring their own collection. So again, it's like letting someone not trained in a particular field just take over and do well, what they want to do. they volunteered to fly the plane, so we'll just let We them. thought you, they love it What's so the much. Yeah. Right. And, you know... Do it on the cassette recorder you get as a child. Yeah. Entertain yourself, but it's one of those things. Just because you're a big fan of the music doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a great broadcaster. That's right. I'll have good banjo playing, but I wouldn't, for any given instant, try to convince you that you hand me one and I could play it. Terry did teach me Cripple Creek, but <laughs> <laughs> that is as far as my repertoire goes. And that's one of those things too, where. Um, I was talking to uh, Eddie Stubbs, a broadcaster I know that we both love and respect. Oh, yes. And, and as far as the, well, they volunteer. And that's a that's another thing that, that hurts the broadcasting stigma for all of us is, um, Eddie put it best, said, if you're willing to work for nothing, then the station thinks that you're worth nothing and thinks that the music is worth nothing. Right. You know, if we don't have to pay to have them on, then the music must not be top notch because you wouldn't, 
not pay someone to play Taylor Swift or Lady Gaga on the radio? I actually find myself using the term, you get what you pay for, a lot. And even to festival promoters, when you look at a lineup and there's one band that stands out and the rest of the weekend are people that either came for free or came for little of nothing. And then they're like, well, I figured if I booked this big name band that people would come and camp and be here all weekend it's like but you didn't compliment that with anything of equal quality well by the time i paid them i had to take whoever would come and play for nothing you get what you pay for if it's worth the investment then you know if it's worth doing it's worth doing right and um so yeah that's that's another of my of my pet peeves is just you know maintaining that quality so that bluegrass gets the respect because of the talented artists who have dedicated their lives to it and sacrificed so much to get the music to the people Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase. And now back to Walls of Time. If anyone is interested in becoming a professional bluegrass broadcaster, what what are some steps that you think that they should take? Do something else. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no, that is that is uh, that is a joke. No, it's it's a great career, but you know, just like I hear people tell Terry, "Oh, well, you can't make any money playing bluegrass." Well, Terry always tells them. If you do it right, you can. And if you have different revenue streams, it can't be all based on just touring. But you get the royalties you receive positioned right. You might do some teaching with instructional materials that you do and um, sell and get things in place correctly and have those different revenue streams. Yes, being a full-time bluegrass musician can be a full-time uh, job a, absolutely yeah. and and it's been the only job that he has had since he graduated high school and I think in radio it's the same way it's about the the preparation it's about the education um, whether it be formal education or just networking to get to know the people to get to know the music just knowing it inside out Um, without having to read it from a script, to be able to tell your audience about J.D. Crow, to be able to tell your audience about the Osborne Brothers. Um, Just, you know, know it, study it, practice it, like anything. Yeah, 
you mentioned, you know, your, your background in emceeing and broadcasting. You mentioned a couple stories, like hanging out with Doc. What What are some other real um, moving or powerful moments that you've witnessed or been a part of, um, whether at a festival or in the studio? Oh, goodness. Uh, where do I start? Yeah. With, with so got 30 many... years of Merle Fest to skim through. <laughs> I know, just yeah. that alone. And then... You know, the world of bluegrass events and red, white, and bluegrass and the Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver Festival. I can just think of so many cool moments backstage. And I would, I would always like to have my camera handy, too, because as an MC, you're in a great position to capture some uh, wonderful snapshots. And um, there was actually a picture last week on social media that emerged of Doyle Lawson and Tony Rice backstage at Denton in about 1982. And I said, I I took that picture. That's my picture. How did they get a hold of my picture? But I think some of it is uh, I had lost my voice one time after emceeing the fourth day. I'd emceed 12 hours for four days. And on that fourth day, I could hardly make a sound. And Marty Rabin was there that day. And Marty said, I know what'll help you. I know what'll help you. I said, please tell me what will help me. He said, salty, greasy potato chips. I'm right. Oh, yes. An excuse to eat salty, greasy (laughs) potato chips. Thank you, Marty. But he said, no, really, the oil and the salt will coat the back of your throat and it will really help. And so, you know, I've gotten some good advice like that. Um, Just sharing stories with, uh, with artists in in a relaxed, casual atmosphere. Um, as a kid, meeting Bobby Osborne for the first time, um, he I had him autograph the inside of my hand there on my palm. And I told him about that one time. I said, when I was 11, you signed my hand. And every time I'd take a shower, when my hand would dry, I would retrace Bobby Osborne on the inside <laughs> of my hand. He thought that was the funniest thing. But... There, there have been a lot of moving stories. It's it's hard to recall particular ones over the years, but my goodness, just just so many fun times of getting to most of the time just stand back and observe, um, you know, listen to a final run through by the Bluegrass Album Band in the mid '80s, or a Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver original band reunion and just sort of stand back and hear hear them tell the stories. But it was the same way when I was growing up with my dad and his friends would come over, just listening to the stories, listening to why this type wood in a guitar sounds better than this type wood or why this bridge shape is better than that bridge. You know, just observing and listening and taking in those stories, uh, to me, has been uh, the beauty of so much of it. You talked about wanting to be able to present bluegrass on the same level that Casey Kasem presented Top 40. Do you think, where do you see bluegrass 40 years later in its ability to present itself in a more professional manner? Oh. Do you see us closing that gap anytime soon? I think it continues to... Uh, fill in for sure and certainly not taking anything away from the professional groups of 40, 50, 60 years ago. My goodness, when you look at Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys on stage, dressed to the nines, playing the best music in the world. When you see Flatt and Scruggs on the Beverly Hillbillies being presented in such 
a professional way. They're the stars coming into town. You know, over the years, there have been um, those moments where, you know, Stanley Brothers, Jimmy Martin and the Sunny Mountain Boys, Osborne Brothers, when they were opening for Merle, I mean, there have been times where audiences go, wow, I love this, I love this sound. Then a movie will come along and start portraying us, you know. There was Bonnie and Clyde, there was Deliverance, there was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And for the greatness of the music and those soundtracks, some of the scenes in the movies were like, you know, uh, but... It is what it is, and all we can do is continue to try to let people know it's serious music played by serious artists who are ultra-talented and are dedicating their lives to sharing it with the world. Where do you see this music going in the future? Oh, it's so hard to say. It's so hard to say. Uh, I'll reference Bobby Osborne again because uh, I'm just such a a fan of the music that he has produced over the years. But to know that an artist in his 80s loves to get online, and he told me one time, he said, if there had been YouTube when Sonny and I were out there, we wouldn't have had to drive from New York to Florida overnight to do a gig just so people would hear the music. He said, it's able to spread so much more quickly now. And I think because of technology and the ability for more people to hear it at one time increases the need for it to be that good quality and people just always putting their best foot forward so we can gain more and more fans over the next 40 years. Yeah, that is pretty cool how when you were growing up, if you wanted to hear a bluegrass record, if you didn't see the band coming through town or if the local record shop didn't carry it, you didn't get to hear it. Whereas now you can just go Google it. You can go see a show that, you know, Terry Bauckham, the Dukes of Drive did last night if someone had their camera out, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Or live with Facebook Live now. You can see it instantaneous. Around the world. Yeah. Around the world. So, um, and I think the music evolves and changes too. And I'm okay with that. Um, And I think I've given you this comparison just in some of our casual conversations in the past. I always look at it like a tree and those deep roots of that tree are our first generation pioneers but for that the Munros, the flatten scruggs indeed jim and jesse all that yeah and for that tree to grow and be allowed to branch out means those roots are staying strong but if you keep chopping it off every time a different sprout comes out of that tree up oh, that don't belong that don't belong and you keep cutting it off at the you know pretty soon you've got a stump and pretty soon the roots are going to die as well but I think if that tree is allowed to grow and branch out not only will it flourish but those roots are staying strong too and that's the way that I like to look at the music um, as it branches out and as it gets bigger it's keeping the roots strong. That's a that's a great analogy because I know um, first time I took uh, I went with some buddies to see the Avett Brothers, and just and they're going to be at Merle Fest um, to see them on stage. Which you know they're definitely out on a limb, 
you know, as, as far as yeah, your branch yeah, analogy is concerned. But the way that they lift up Doc Watson's legacy right. to tens of thousands of people every single night, right. I'm sure has made Doc Watson's musical legacy grow that much stronger and spread that much more. Or, you know, Mumford & Sons, when they go out and talk about how they love the Stanley Brothers, that's, Absolutely. that's spreading the Stanley Brothers to a whole new raft of people. Absolutely. Bill Monroe had his relatives in that local Kentucky area that played instruments to listen to. That was his influence. Okay, as you get another generation in there, you know, so Earl Scruggs talked about listening to Snuffy Jenkins and a few others, but Earl worked out that three-finger style that helped bluegrass become... Bluegrass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what we know and love. And then as J.D. Crow listened to Earl, and then Terry Bauckham listened to J.D. Crow, and then Sammy Sheeler listened to Terry Bauckham, every time it's another generation, there are more influences. And then as you come forward, there are influences of those influences. So naturally, stylistically, there will be some change. Lyrically, there has to be some change so that the songs make sense, you know, Back in the 1940s and 50s, people could relate to cabins and babies dying young because of sickness and what a big deal it was to leave mom and dad. Because when you're leaving, there wasn't a cell phone where you could check in every day. You couldn't FaceTime them. So I think lyrically, songs change to fit the times. Styles of music change to fit all the other influences that have come into it but to me it's a good thing awesome. well thank you so much cindy I, I sure do appreciate it daniel thank you for inviting me to join you nothing nothing pleases me more than to get to talk about music and musicians and how it has played such an important part in my life so thanks a bunch for the opportunity kneedeepinbluegrass.com Absolutely. Yep, kneedeepinbluegrass.com. There you can find a list of stations that air the show, and I hope there's one in your area. If not, you can pick up a web stream around the world. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Daniel. Cindy Bauckham, my special guest on this episode of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. I'm sitting here with my co-producer, Mr. Ty Gilpin. I recorded this interview with Cindy backstage at Merle Fest. You can hear some of the hustle and bustle in the background. There were bands on stage, and we were sitting in one of the dressing rooms uh, talking about her rise to being one of the top radio broadcasters in bluegrass music. I don't know. I've grown up around radio broadcasting my whole life, so it's really interesting for me to hear about bluegrass broadcasting from her perspective. But I think to some of our listeners, it may be really fun to learn about what goes on behind the microphone of your favorite bluegrass radio show. Yeah, I'm really glad you could have Cindy and do an interview with her. She's an important person. Uh, for the bluegrass community. You know, she's always had a passion for bluegrass. You hear that as she talks about how she got involved in broadcasting in the first place, which basically came from her passion for the music. And uh, it's really great because, you know, not everybody is a performer in this uh, world, but there are so many important people. And Cindy's one of those. You know, she's a gatekeeper uh, for all intents and purposes. And I think it was really great and hopefully uh, will be informative for bluegrass bands to hear a little bit about her perspective. A lot of work goes into programming bluegrass music. 
She gives a lot of great insight on what she programs and why and why it's important to have quality music. Cindy's always had high standards, quality standards, and that is what makes her such an important professional. If you know anyone who is an aspiring bluegrass broadcaster, please share this episode with them because Cindy offers such great tips and insight into the world of being a bluegrass broadcaster, and I think it provides a lot of great food for thought on help raising the level of professionalism in broadcasting in general. Yeah, you're an inspiring bluegrass broadcaster, right, Daniel? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Fledgling. Let's put it that. Floundering. (laughs) I think it's great to hear Cindy's thoughts, and I loved her analogy about uh, what it takes to put in a good radio show. It's the same as what it takes to put in a good live performance of music. There's a lot of hard work on the back end and development and perfection that goes in, and uh, professionalism. And her keeping those high standards and her advice to the people that submit her music, make sure it's a professional recording, make sure you're serious about bringing your music to the masses. I thought that was really great insight. And uh, also her pointing out that, uh, you know, how loyal the fans are in this music. And that gives people who may not know a lot about bluegrass uh, some insight, again, into bluegrass culture. We've got uh, fans that just follow an artist's career through its entirety listen to all their albums. They look to people like Cindy to introduce new artists to them and also to introduce new music from the artists they love. So she really plays a very important part. And uh, I've worked with her, you know, promoting music through the years. She's great to work with. She's great to work with in a festival capacity. Um, Of course, she mentioned she's married to the great uh, Terry Balcom, Mr. Duke of Drive. She has a son who's a fantastic musician as well. Uh, just a, a passion for music in her camp. I think it's great. If you see Cindy out and about at a bluegrass festival, she emcees a lot of our favorite festivals, especially in the Carolinas. Be sure to uh, shake her hand. She loves chatting with people about the music she loves. I thought it was really fitting to get to record this interview backstage at Merle Fest. She has emceed every single Merle Fest, which was a uh, really great learning from her about when Doc Uh, helped start the festival in memory of his son, the late Merle Watson, and hearing the tale of him uh, asking Cindy to record nature sounds for him, uh, I get chill bumps just thinking about it. Yeah, that reminded me of uh, your conversation you had with Peter Rowan. We mentioned some of the same uh, things that Bill Monroe liked, the natural sounds of being connected to the natural world. I thought that was a a neat tie-in there, too. Maybe all these... Masters of music, maybe that's their secret. They're just uh, their music is uh, the music of nature. I think you might be onto something there, Ty. This episode also reminded me of some of the JD Crow episodes as well. For any folks, uh, just like how I encourage new bands or new artists to listen to those episodes with a notepad. New bands can do the same. Whether you're a broadcaster or not, there's something for everyone that's involved with the bluegrass music industry, particularly the recording industry, to learn from Cindy on this episode. So be sure to get those notepads out. There was a lot of great nuts and bolts content uh, if you're looking to be a bluegrass professional. Where can folks go to learn more about the podcast, Ty? They can go to our social media pages, Walls of Time Podcast on Facebook, Walls of Time Pod on Twitter, We're on Instagram, we're on Spotify. In fact, there'll be a playlist. Since Cindy's not an artist, we're going to, on this playlist for this show on Spotify, we'll probably 
put some folks up there that she's mentioned, but we'll also put plenty of her husband's band, Terry Balkan, the Dukes of Drive. We'll put some of his fantastic music on our playlist for this week. You can also listen to us on Spotify or on Apple Podcast. And where else can they hear us? You can hear us on Stitcher. You can hear us on Google Play Podcasts. We're all over. So you can go to wallsoftimepodcast.com. It has all the details. Follow us on social media. Wherever you listen, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We really appreciate it. Uh, up next, Little Roy Lewis of the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame. When you think of bluegrass characters, he is at near the top of the list. Such a unique personality. And we had an absolute ball uh, having Little Roy Lewis on the podcast. Hear that episode next. Thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.